and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated links section of damninteresting.com and turn it into a discussion that you can impress your friends and people at parties with. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Have you guys ever wondered why Napoleon's portraits usually show him with that one hand inside his shirt? Oh, I've never thought about it, but I definitely know what you're talking about. Well, History Extra has an article noting that most of the most famous portraits of Napoleon show that one hand tucked out of sight. But this was really just an artistic treatment for portraiture that was just kind of hot at the time. Oh, so like lots of people did it. Yeah, it was more to do with portraiture in the 18th and 19th century. So concealing a hand in the shirt became a common pose as paintings became more of a symbol of statesmanlike nobility and restraint. I'm a rich dude. I don't have to show you my fingers. Yeah. Like. <laughs> According to a 1737 book on etiquette, it symbolized manly boldness tempered with modesty. I've heard of that word. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like a faint memory of bygone eras. And it does go back because even as far as ancient Greece, the eminent orator Ascanes declared that speaking with an arm inside one's cloak was a sign of modesty. So happy to huh. take some inspiration from, you know, all this antiquity. A lot of men and even some women started sporting the one-handed pose when they were sitting for their portraits. And it wasn't just Napoleon. It included George Washington, Mozart. And it is worth noting that hands are really hard to paint well. So this also <laughs> may have been like... <laughs> You know, a technique that painters were really eager to come into fashion (laughs) because maybe you wouldn't have as much pressure for being less talented. You know, hiding a hand in portraits became so ubiquitous, in fact, that its symbolism started to just disappear until Napoleon came along and really kind of to use the pun in the article, grasped it with both hands. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, so he understood that optics were important more than other people did. And so, for example, when he was coronated in 1804, he crowned himself to signify that he had risen through his own merit, which I'm sorry Mm -hmm. is a total boss move, I gotta say. Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's it's not the Pope doing it. It's not my mom doing it. I'm doing it. And the interesting thing is he didn't choose this pose. In fact, he didn't even sit for what is now the most famous depiction of him. And it's Jacques-Louis David's 1812 painting of Napoleon in his study. But apparently, once he saw the painting that was done of him that he didn't even sit for, Napoleon reportedly declared, you have understood me, my dear David. And the hand and shirt became ever more associated with him. He's like, well, they painted me doing this in the picture, so now I have to do it all the time. This is just how I have to stand now. Exactly. Like, if you're a pop star and you have a stylist and they dress you in clothes you never would have chosen for yourself, but now it's your brand. Sorry. Better get those endorsement deals. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from The Guardian, and it's titled The Hidden World of Cats, What Our Feline (gasps) Friends Are Doing When We're Not Looking. Tell me I'm dying to know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and this is by Siren Kale, written in the first person, but I'll render it in the third. A little bit longer, but it's a fun one because it's all about cats. 
So, as Siren prepared to write this piece, her three-year-old cat Larry had been missing for 24 hours. She'd checked under the bins, posted in a community Facebook group, and googled variations of lost cat how long normal before come home all day. (laughs) Eventually, of course, Larry did swagger home, weary from another adventure on the Savannah, or uh, Lewisham, South London. (laughs) But where had he been? To find out, Siren contacted attractive manufacturers of GPS trackers for cats and dogs. It kindly volunteered to provide Siren with some units, and next she recruited five cat owners, all curious to know about what their charges are up to when out and about. So now we have a meet the cats section where we say, (laughs) feel free here to imagine a slow motion montage from a Guy Ritchie film. We've got Pablo, a bossy two-year-old short hair from Bricksworth, Northamptonshire. Pablo is owned by Andrea Franklin, a 52-year-old sales manager. Bluebell, a British shorthair blue from Buckfastly Devon, who purrs like an engine, loves frozen Licky Licks treats, and went missing for three days last year, leaving her owner, 70-year-old retired personal assistant Diane Powell, distraught. She's never haughty on purpose, Powell says. (laughs) And then Marina, a vocal four-year-old tabby from Acton, West London, who is the terror of the neighborhood. Her owner, Ahmed El Bui, says, Sometimes the neighbors say on Facebook that Marina is bullying the other cats. <laughs> Zaki, a free-spirited two-year-old ragdoll who three times has got stuck up a tree in the garden of his owner, Nadat Tani Mabwa. And last but not least, we have PC, a muscular serial killer from Hartwell, <laughs> Northamptonshire. He once disappeared for three months before turning up alive and well in a nearby forest. His owner, Will Benzie, said most days he catches something, mice, birds, once a pretty sizable rabbit. Hmm. So imagine like a dramatic bong here. Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Siri texts her boyfriend with the green vomit face emoji. He's crossing the track. She lives behind a busy railway track and trains pretty much run constantly into central London. But the track is about 30 feet up from ground level. She didn't think Larry could climb that high, but he can't. Larry is also crossing streets around Siren's house, although he does not go further than a few hundred meters because she lives in a densely populated neighborhood with other cats. John Bradshaw, the author of Cat Sense, says many cats will self-limit how far they go. They don't like challenging other cats or being challenged. Same. Yeah. (laughs) Cats are territorial with established patches they defend. Territory is the most important thing to cats. Cats learn to share space and avoid one another to make it work, as it can be damaging to fight all the time. By limiting himself to the area directly around Siren's house, Larry, it seems, is a lover rather than a fighter. But the same cannot be said for Pablo. A flabbergasted Franklin said, He's traveled four and a half miles. I genuinely thought he'd just be sitting in some old lady's living room all day. (laughs) And then he goes into different gardens. He seems to have a few hangout spots. Franklin says, I think he has a crew. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. Tuesday. Dum-dum. Yeah. (laughs) Pablo is getting more brazen, crossing a busy A road into a country park. It's notorious for speeding there, Franklin says. But Franklin believes it's wrong to keep Pablo indoors. And in this view, in the UK, Franklin is actually in the majority. Unlike in the US, where domesticated cats typically stay indoors, in the UK, just 26% of British cats are indoor only. Hmm. Not everyone is enamored of this. Bradshaw says there is an anti-cat lobby, and they're very vocal people. (laughs) People who enjoy their gardens and allotments get seriously fed up with the cat crap everywhere. (laughs) Hmm. 
Then there's the hunting. Professor Robbie McDonald, an expert in companion animal ecology at the University of Exeter, says predation and hunting are natural attributes of cats. In countries where cats are not a native species, such mm-hmm. as Australia and New Zealand, they can have a devastating impact on wildlife. Bradshaw says, I do feel that cats are an easy target. Skyscrapers kill more birds than cats do, but you don't see people standing outside the factories where glass is made saying, you're bird killers. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, Wednesday. (laughs) Marina has been on rambunctious form. El Bowie says she's been harassing a few neighbors for food. They went to a nearby construction site and spent the night there. (laughs) Over in Bricksworth, Pablo's hunting has ramped up. This morning he went out without breakfast, Franklin said. He's obviously getting his food somewhere else. He nipped home at lunch and brought a dormouse with him. McDonald says, if the cat is under your management, I hesitate to say (laughs) control, because no one really controls a cat. You can work out ways to reduce the propensity of the cat to kill. Bells on collars work, as does switching cats to a premium high-protein food diet and giving them mental stimulation by playing with them in the morning. Changing the cat's food can reduce the amount of wildlife they kill by over a third and playing with your cat more than a quarter. Hmm. Moving on to Thursday, one cat has slipped his collar. (gasps) Benzie says, I came out of the house and her collar was on the gatepost. Oh, no. I feel like that's a message from PC. Yeah. Stop tracking me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a dead horse head in the bed. She she wants you to know. (laughs) All the cat owners or guardians, as Kelsey calls them, have rapidly become addicted to following their cats on the app, Siren included. It's so time-consuming, Franklin complains. I'll be trying to work, and then I think, ooh, I wonder what he's doing. And (laughs) I want to pause, because, like, this sounds so much to me like torn-up partners just finding out their spouses are just, like, going out on them, Uh but they're tracking them over GPS, and they can't stop watching. (laughs) He went to someone else's house and ate food. How dare he? I know. God. He got pet in the park. (laughs) So... Powell has been analyzing Bluebell's tracking data and noticed something unexpected, which is that if we go out of the house, she says, she comes in. It's almost like she's looking after the house for us. And Mabawa is using her newfound knowledge of Zaki's whereabouts to steal a march on her wayward pet. After seeing on the tracker that Zaki often visited the grounds of a local care home, she decided to walk down. I saw him between some bushes and he looked at me and was shocked. (laughs) We looked at each other for a while and he was embarrassed. He looked as if he'd been found out. (laughs) And then finally, Friday. In Hartwell, Benzie has observed PC spending an unlikely amount of time in his neighbor's back garden. And Benzie went and asked her, have you been putting food out? She smiled and says, yes, I've been putting it out back so you can't see it. (laughs) Benzie also suspects that PC is getting a third or even fourth daily meal from the occupants of a row of houses about a mile away. After his morning visit to the coal yard, PC tends to wind up there in the afternoon. (laughs) When Bradshaw was consulting on a pioneering 2012 Horizon documentary that tracked cats, he found it was commonplace for cats to be fed multiple times a day. He says there was one cat that had four owners. Cats are opportunists. Mm Mm-hmm. And as Surin wraps up the article, Larry is sitting next to her. And although Surin has loved watching him perambulate around her South London home like a dowager countess, she's relegated Larry's tracking device to a drawer. If he wants to come back, he will. <laughs> oh, the definition of love. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it does definitely seem like it veers into the whole, like, the helicopter parenting kind of thing. 
Like you get addicted <laughs> to knowing where they are at all times. And I can see how that would be super distracting and ultimately stressful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would not want to know. And I mean, I've had cats that, you know, went away and never came back. And honestly, thinking about like, what if the cat just never came back and it was on the GPS tracker and you just see <gasps> it go away? I mean, you get to watch it with its new family. And like you yeah. see, like, oh, it's in Oregon now. Oh, <laughs> well, look, if humans get Instagram and we can stalk our exes, then yeah. we can go take our pets back from those cat seducers. <laughs> Don't you know he has a fish allergy? You homewrecker. <laughs> Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Next up, we have an article from LAMag.com titled How California-Born Restaurants Conquered America. Ooh. And it's sort of a review slash summary of a new book from Chef George Geary about the shocking number of major restaurants, especially fast food restaurants, that originated in Southern California. Hmm. And one of his major themes is this push-pull between the restaurant industry and the film industry. You know, on the one hand, celebrity endorsements do mean something on the national stage. And when, for example, Julia Child gushes about McDonald's French fries, which she did in 1973, mm -hmm. or Anthony Bourdain declares unpaid that the best burgers in the world come from the In-N-Out burger chain, you know, that is going to affect a company's overall success, even mm -hmm. if realistically everybody loves the seedy little burger joint in their neighborhood. And those just happen to be the burger places in the neighborhoods where the celebrities lived. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's also a surprising number of very successful restaurateurs who are based in the Los Angeles area, primarily because they failed at being in the film industry themselves. You know, there's this running theme that California is still a place where people with dreams and the ego to think that they can achieve those dreams go. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> but where's the lie? <laughs> yeah. And Geary's theory seems to be that that personality type also lends itself to being successful in the restaurant industry as well, which is pretty cutthroat, as is the film industry, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Geary himself readily admits that while he was a trained chef from the beginning, he too falls into this category of always wanting to be sort of pop culture adjacent. He was the mastermind behind the giant corn dogs that are apparently served at Disneyland. And for many years, he worked on the set of The Golden Girls, baking the cheesecakes that were apparently a staple of the show. <laughs> they were. They were always yeah. going late at night into the kitchen to hash it out over some cheesecake. And I had never heard of it. I went and looked it up. Apparently, over the show's seven seasons, there were more than a hundred scenes where the four women sat around a table eating cheesecake. Yes, Which, I am applauding. That sounds accurate. <laughs> yeah. And it's especially funny when you learn that B. Arthur apparently hated cheesecake. Like, they had all these <laughs> interviews with her co-stars of like, yeah, we all knew, but we couldn't change the script at that point. So she would just sort of like push it around her plate. But if you look, she like never puts never a bite in her mouth it. on screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. B. Arthur's not going to take anyone's business. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. She's like, you're going to pay me and I'm going to look like I'm eating cheesecake. That's called acting. <laughs> there you go. But so it turns out that the McDonald's brothers, for example, wanted to be in movies, and they only created their restaurant chain after it became apparent that neither one was destined to make it. Other chains were started when people who were successful in Hollywood were looking for somewhere to plunk their money, such as IHOP, which was founded by filmmaker Al Lappin. And in his case, he kind of didn't even care about food at all. It was entirely a business decision. He saw long lines for the Bob's Big Boy restaurant and noticed that the building across the street was available to rent. So he opened IHOP purely to cash in on that overflow traffic. Hmm. Another case of success breeding success came from Glenn Bell, who was a high school student at San Bernardino High when he saw the pure efficiency of the brand new McDonald's that had just opened in 1948. 
And he decided to apply that same philosophy to Mexican food and thus created the first Taco Bell. <gasps> Just a few years later, one of his best employees, John Gallardi, wanted to strike out on his own. So Gallardi went German instead and founded the Wiener Schnitzel chain, which is now the largest hot dog chain in the world with over 300 locations in the U.S. Huh. Baskin Robbins was also founded in Los Angeles, as was Lawry's, which is, of course, famous not only for its many restaurants, but also its prepared food innovations, including frozen fish sticks and Lawry's seasoned salt. Mm -hmm. Other innovations that have come out of California, according to Geary, include sesame seeds on buns, ice cream cakes, and allegedly the entire concept of Sunday morning brunch. Wow. Yeah. They gave us so much. Exactly. <laughs> the book also includes origin stories for things like nachos, tableside guacamole, and a long-running feud over which local restaurant first invented the concept of Taco Tuesday, which <laughs> I actually think is a great example of how Los Angeles exports its food culture to the rest of us, because I had never heard of Taco Tuesday until I saw the Lego movie, however many years back. Where, you know, obviously the writers lived in L.A. and just acted like this local phenomenon was something we all knew about. And now it is. I mean, how many places mm. across the country now are doing Taco Tuesday because L.A. told us that we're supposed to. So, yeah, I mean, I make the Taco Tuesday joke all the time, whether I'm having tacos or not. That's right. <laughs> well, it is Tuesday as we record this. So that follows. That's true. Oh, it is wow. Taco Tuesday. How did I not realize that? <laughs> ah, OK, now I definitely need another taco. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, this one's going to look at a brief history of perfume visiting an archive huh. of ancient scents. It's on LitHub. And if you are into fragrances or perfumes, I highly recommend the full read because the author, Sarah Everts, went to what is essentially like an archival museum of scents. Hmm. She goes a little bit into the history of humans perfuming. And among the most enthusiastic perfumers in all of antiquity probably had to be the ancient Egyptians. So at the Louvre in Paris, hmm. there's a delightful Egyptian limestone relief from about 600 BC that depicts bare-breasted women harvesting lilies in a garden overrun with flowers as tall as they are. And what they're doing is they're wrapping the lilies in cloth and twisting the textile around two sticks above an enormous vessel. And so they're thinking this was probably to squeeze out the oil or the water to extract the flower scent. Hmm. And they even concocted really complex perfumed mixtures like kyphi, K-Y-P-H-I, that have 16 ingredients that include raisins, frankincense, honey, juniper berries, and even wine. And they would grind hmm. it into a mortar. They would soak it in wine or heat it to produce a thick, sweet paste. And not only was that applied, but it was also consumed to combat lung and liver disease, or they would throw it on hot coals as an incense to produce a smoky fragrance. And if you think about it, our own English word perfume literally means to smoke through, which is kind mm. of how ancient mm. that technique was to impart fragrance, right? Mm -hmm. So they're thinking, you know, historically, the Egyptians probably shared or even were inspired by the Sumerians, which were an early Bronze Age civilization where Iraq and Kuwait are now. And they also shared these recipes with the Mediterranean coast. For example, in Cyprus, archaeologists have uncovered a 4,000-year-old perfume factory where workers would use olive oil produced in a nearby mill to extract the scent of fragrant plants. Hmm. Even in the Roman Empire, perfume continued to infuse all aspects as long as you were super, super rolling in dough. So if you were super wealthy, you could do extravagant things thanks to sophisticated Roman plumbing, 
like releasing a fragrance from sealing sprinkler systems during an elaborate banquet to complement different <laughs> courses. Just missed everybody. That's awesome. I know. It sounds great. But the first thing that came in mind was that rave scene from Blade. And surely they wouldn't use blood <laughs> for, you know, the banquets. That would be for like the, you know, shock and awe campaigns, if you will. Mm-hmm. You can even see currently individual dishes spiked with perfume. That legacy is still to be found in the Mediterranean region. If you can think of pastries that are drenched in honey and rose water or orange water. I'm thinking of like Hmm. baklava and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the city of Versailles is home to this fascinating archive of historical perfume. They call it the Osmotech. You can sniff perfumes worn by first century Roman Empire elite and even a protective fragrance used by French thieves who robbed plague victims without succumbing to the disease themselves. Mm. When they were finally caught by authorities, the thieves were condemned to death, but they were given a choice. You can have death by torture or we'll give you a rapid death if you can share your secret for how you avoided the infection. And that secret was the perfumed mixture they wore during their macabre activities, le vinaigre des quatre voleurs, or vinegar of the four thieves. So the sample is being described by the author as, you know, having a really sharp odor of vinegar. There's a strong scent of fresh mint, other green herbs. To her mind, the plague defense smells like a delicious salad dressing. (laughs) Hmm. The fact that it had a vinegar base was kind of genius because vinegar kills bacteria and it kills Mm -hmm. odor-causing bacteria or otherwise. And so the thieves were clever in their formulation, even though it's unlikely they could have explained why it worked. (laughs) Sure. I mean, that's all that matters is they know it does work. Yeah. And because it was vinegar, it still did enough to like mask their natural musk or perfume of themselves. I'm a little fascinated by this idea of perfume as a paste. Like I'm picturing these Egyptians with like, you know, those football, like they put the smear of black under their eyes so that it doesn't reflect. (laughs) Like I want to see somebody with like a really fragrant paste Mm -hmm. right across their cheekbones. And (laughs) and then, you know, like who's that delightfully smelling person? It may not be smeared as a visible paste, but I can tell you if you're curious, there are resin paste formulations of fragrance you can get today. Hmm. Amber resin paste is probably one of the more familiar. There's a really cheap brand from Whole Foods and you just need to like kind of dab and smear a little bit on pulse points and it lasts all day. I can didn't mean this to turn into a recommendation, but... Right, um, right. Yeah, <laughs> wearable resins, still a thing for fragrance. <laughs> Good to know. Next link. Next, Next link. link. I'm on an animal theme today. All right. <laughs> this article comes from NBCNews.com and it's titled Bird Brain. Why a cockatoo trick in Australia has scientists enthralled. Ooh, get him, bird. (laughs) (laughs) So a few years ago, a Sydney scientist noticed a sulfur-crested cockatoo opening his trash bin. Not every resident would be thrilled by that, but ornithologist Richard Major was impressed by the ingenuity. It's quite a feat for a bird to grasp a bin lid with its beak pried open, then shuffle far enough along the bin's edge that the lid falls backwards, Mm. revealing edible trash treasures inside. Intrigued, Major teamed up with researchers in Germany to study how many cockatoos learned this trick. In early 2018, they found from a survey of residents that birds in three Sydney suburbs had mastered the novel foraging technique, and by the end, 2019, birds were lifting bins in 44 suburbs. Wow. So the researcher's next question was whether the cockatoos had each figured out how to do this alone or whether they copied the strategy from experienced birds. And the research published Thursday in the journal Science concluded the birds mostly learned by watching their peers. Major said, the spread wasn't just popping up randomly. It started in southern suburbs and radiated outwards. Hmm. 
Scientists have documented other examples of social learning in birds. One classic case involves small birds called blue tits that learned to puncture foil lids of milk bottles in the United Kingdom starting in the 1920s. Wow. But observing a new cultural trend spreading in the wild or suburbs in real time afforded the cockatoo researchers a special opportunity, said Lucy Applin, a cognitive ecologist at Max Planck Institute in Germany. During the summer of 2019, Trash Collection Day in suburban Sydney was the team's research day. (laughs) As garbage trucks rolled down their routes and people shoved bins to the curb, Max Planck Institute behavioral ecologist Barbara Klump drove around and stopped to record cockatoos landing on bins. (laughs) Not all cockatoos succeeded in opening them, but she took around 160 videos of victorious efforts. (laughs) And I mean, like, I can't really picture this because just wild cockatoos in suburbs are not a thing. That's bizarre enough. And then they're like, I'm opening this garbage can. And then also there's a woman with a camera filming it right next to them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) analyzing the footage, Klump realized the vast majority of birds opening bins were males, which tend to be larger than females. The birds that master the trick also tend to be dominant in social hierarchies. So this suggests that if you're more socially connected, you have more opportunities to observe and acquire new behavior and also to spread it. Isabel Lahmer, a behavioral researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles, who is not involved in the research, said, In an unpredictable, rapidly changing environment with unpredictable food sources, opportunistic animals thrive. Over the past decade, research has shown that urban adaptability is correlated with traits like innovativeness, behavioral flexibility, and exploration. What the new research adds to that understanding is that critters that easily transmit knowledge and new skills socially also have an advantage. Parrots, which include cockatoos, are known for being among the most clever birds. They have a brain just the size of a walnut, but the density of neurons packed into their forebrains gives many species cognitive abilities similar to great apes. Hmm. Australian Museum's major says everyone in Sydney has an opinion about cockatoos. Whether you love to watch these big flamboyant social birds or think they're a pest, you have to respect them. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, if some creature is going to be digging in my garbage can, I'd rather it be a pretty bird than a raccoon. Amen. It's fundamentally a little scary to me. Like, I, you know, birds at least are pretty. Yeah. (laughs) To be fair, I would be pretty embarrassed if I got bullied by a pack of cockatoos. (laughs) Look, they're only going to bully you if you're not making efforts to befriend them. That sounds like a mob racket where they're coming in going, we offer you protection. <laughs> if you don't want your garbage can run over yeah. by those raccoons, you better That's pay right. us. They, and then They call me king of the cockatoos. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is from Discover Magazine and it's called The Psychology of Why Consumer Rewards Programs Suck You In. Obviously, the main underlying concept is pretty obvious to anyone. Stores want to encourage you to come back and shop again, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it turns out there's been a lot of psychological research on human motivation, and there are some very detailed reasons for why certain consumer reward programs are structured the way they are. So one of the main differentiators in rewards programs has to do with how easy it is to switch to a competitor. Like when you're buying gas, for example, it's extremely easy to just pick a different parking lot to pull into. And so gas retailers want to focus on developing habitual behaviors, which means gas station rewards are almost always something small that you're guaranteed to get every time you come in. Credit cards, on the other hand, are more of a pain to switch. So those companies are more likely to offer a really big incentive up front that gets you to commit to the account. And then they'll pull back or even completely eliminate the reward a few months in 
on the expectation that you won't jump through all those hoops to close the account. Another behavior that's been well-documented in both humans and animals is that the closer we get to a goal, the harder or faster we work. And one study in 2006 showed that in a standard punch card promotion where, like, you buy 10 coffees and the 11th is free, Mm -hmm. the time it took for the customer to come back in between each punch became shorter and shorter as they got closer to 10. Yeah, because you got to collect them all. You're almost done. That's right. You're almost to your free coffee. Mm-hmm. But so then the researchers took it a step farther, giving some customers a standard 10 punch card and giving others a 12 punch card with the first two punches already done. Mm. And customers who got the card with the first two already completed filled out their cards in less than 13 days on average, while those who started with an empty 10 punch card took 16 days. Whoa. And that one honestly got me because I have a little punch card from this boba tea place that I go to all the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, the checkout lady will just give me an extra stamp for free. And <gasps> she acts like it's because I'm a regular customer and she likes me or whatever. But I've realized now, like, no, she's <laughs> suckering me in. She's doing it to everybody. Oh. Yeah. And it's not like it costs anything because they just give you another punch card and you're on the hook again. Right. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I'm coming back sooner. So ultimately, they're mm-hmm. getting more money out of me because I'm buying more boba tea just for the stupid punches. Yeah. Right. Because, like, if you get, if it's buy 10, get one free, then, like, as a percentage, you know, it's, what, 10% off? Yeah, exactly. So they've also done studies on the social status of certain rewards programs, where if they put the rewards into membership tiers, you're more likely to strive for platinum status or whatever, because it makes you feel special, even if the reward itself is minimal. Mm -hmm. And more counterintuitively, membership tiers are a case where they actually do want to restrict how many people they let in. Because they Mm. want to keep that sheen of exclusivity. So what they do is they allow that small handful of platinum members to share their rewards with anyone they want. Kind of how a gym will let you bring in a guest or AAA will come Mm. to any car you're stranded in, not just your Mm. own. So, I mean, ultimately, it ends up functioning like a buy one, get one free deal, where mathematically, it really just means everything in the store is half price. But you Mm. have to buy two to get the deal. And in this case, you as the Platinum member are actually paying for all those people who are using the service for free, but you do it willingly because it feels like a fancy exclusive deal and you get that social capital of being the helpful friend and everyone seeing that you're a Platinum member who can, you know, give them cool things. And just in case all that weren't depressing enough, studies have also shown that dollar for dollar, almost all rewards programs end up being identical. They each kind of frame it in different ways, but at the end of the day, the market will bear what it will bear, and there's a maximum discount that any place can afford to offer. So no deal, no matter how good it sounds, is really any better than you're going to get anywhere else. Which, you know, on the one hand, yeah, duh, but on the other hand, dang it! Like, they got me! (laughs) I like to think of myself as a savvy consumer, but the lady at the boba tea place, man, she got Mm -hmm. me, and I didn't know she was getting me, so... (laughs) Now I'm angry, and I want to say, like, I won't go get boba tea anymore, but I will. I totally will. Exactly. I mean, you totally need some boba to cool down. I know, right? That's the only (laughs) thing that can comfort me. (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. Discover Magazine has a sweet little ditty on why some plants close their leaves at night. Have you guys ever seen this phenomenon before? I've heard of it. I don't think I've witnessed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I remember that from uh, The Lost World. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Those pretty little flowers that bloom only at night and they're gorgeous. Okay. Yeah. Well, night blooming flowers are definitely a thing, but specifically some plants will close their leaf 
structures. Oh. oh, okay. They'll have these fronds that then get all like, almost like a book. All these little leaves will start to close the book. And so it's an evolution driven behavior called nictinasty, which is so fun to say. Hmm. <laughs> there are some flora that fold themselves up at night, like tulips do this, poppies will even do this, and they have natural clocks the same way that we do. Hmm. But their movements are linked to light and temperature changes. And so nictinastic plants know when to seal and unfurl thanks to phytochrome, which is a blue-green pigment associated with the absorption of light, and it helps regulate different types of growth and development. So phytochrome detects both red light and far red light to establish the circadian rhythms. Obviously, plants don't have muscles, and so they rely on something called the pulvinus to mm. propel their leaves. This doesn't exist in all plants, but it's typically found at the base of a leaf and works as kind of like a motor organ. It creates noticeable movement in plant leaves by enlarging and shrinking all through hydrostatic pressure. So we know they do this, but why and how did they evolve to do so? We're not yeah. really sure, but scientists have a few theories. One common theory is that they adapted to capture water more efficiently. So plant leaves lower and spread out during the day will catch rain and absorb moisture before closing inward at night, maybe to allow water droplets to trickle down to the roots. Some researchers think that plants will close with nictinasty to keep pollen dry. For pollinator plants that are associated with insects that are active during the day, like bees and butterflies, closing at night can also protect the pollen by making it difficult for unwanted pests or nocturnal pollinators like bats, moths, and beetles to snatch pollen. So if they're picky about who is collecting their pollen, that may have been an evolutionary adoption as well. We can even go as far back to Charles Darwin, who theorized that plants may be protecting themselves from another nighttime danger, such as freezing. Hmm. The movement could also be associated with several behaviors that increase the likelihood of a plant's growth and survival. But look up some videos online. It's remarkable. You can see them happen in real time. It's not super quick, like a Venus flytrap closing, nor is it as slow as having to look at like time lapses of flowers mm -hmm. blooming, but definitely cool. Well, that's neat. I also close up at night. <laughs> and prefer that no one looks at me or touches me. So this pollen is I not for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles that we did not have time to get to today include why do nuclear bombs form mushroom clouds? How mockingbirds compose songs just like Beethoven and tweezers of sound can pick objects up without physical contact. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>